These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. The year is around 1060 or 1050-ish BCE. Assyria and Babylon are, for the first time in a long time, amidst a stable peace. In the north, Ashurbelkala of Assyria is holding off the Arameans as best he can, while in the south, his puppet king Adad Apa Idna leads Babylon into the largest set of constructions that the city will see for centuries. Now, things aren't great for the common folk. The invaders grow ever bolder, and famine, which had abated for the last decade or so, is again starting to bite. But for those of a social class to be insulated for such things, the scribes, the ministers, the priests, the elite tradesmen, things are going remarkably well. And into this period of remarkable stability steps a remarkable man, Esagil Kin Apli, history's first scientific rock star, the Einstein of Mesopotamia, and the most prominent intellectual before the rise of Greek philosophy. He's going to write the great textbooks that unify the learning that had taken place up to this point and create the standards for scientific progress going forward. For centuries to come, scholars mention his name with glowing praise. His works are found in the last libraries of Mesopotamian civilization, and so famous is his name that other scholars will write works and claim to just be copying Esagilkin Apli so that their own texts seem more credible by association. But the story of Asagilkin Apli starts centuries before he was born. And as we march back centuries, take a look at your um, podcast playtime. This episode is going to go long. Just a warning, I got too excited. I'm going to be honest, I had too much fun with this. Uh, You can always pause and pick it up again later. In fact, the most famous attribution of his family lineage calls him the son of Asaluhi Mansum, a claim which can't literally be true since that was the great court scholar under King Hammurabi some seven centuries previous. But the point is that he's intellectually the heir of the Mesopotamian wisdom traditions that were millennia old by this point. And to understand his works, we need to start with those very traditions. The first thing we need to realize is something that's simultaneously obvious and often forgotten. Wisdom, the foundations of what we now call science and philosophy, predates writing, probably to an extreme degree. Now, not everyone thought deeply all the time, but there have always been people pondering the deeper questions of existence, both the how and why of the universe, for as long as people have been, you know, intellectually modern, which the scientists say is at least tens of thousands of years now. Equally obvious, though, is that we can't truly know the shape of those pre-literate thoughts until they get written down. While wisdom literature emerges pretty early in the scheme of things, indicating that thinking about moral issues was a prominent and active concern in pre-literate Mesopotamia, the first writing itself is actually indicative of certain philosophical priorities. 
You see, writing comes out of economic prosperity. A small tribe with only a few sheep doesn't need writing to remember how many sheep it has. It only, it's only as it starts to really farm and it's, as its herds expand and as exchanges between people grow, that people start to write out records of harvests and receipts of exchange. That first proto-writing was numbers and nouns. A clay tablet might have a tally followed by a picture of a grain stalk or of a sheep's head. And this tells us that the writer wanted to remember something about those 15 sheep or whatever it was. Over time, a new class of symbols was added to the nouns to indicate what exactly is significant about those sheep. Maybe the clay will now say 15 sheep are here, or 15 sheep were sold, or 15 sheep were eaten, introducing the idea of verbs. Now, all of these ideas already existed in spoken language. Even the pre-literate Mesopotamians were not grunting like cavemen, struggling hard to utter things like, Grog smash! But it does seem like inventing writing out of nothing is actually really hard, so hard that it was only ever done three times in human history, in Mesopotamia, in China, and in Mesoamerica. Maybe also in Peru, that one isn't clear. By itself, the process of writing is not inherently philosophical. It's just a solution to the challenges that arise from increasing economic prosperity and social complexity. However, the form of writing in the ancient Near East, among the cuneiform societies in particular, was unique, despite the parallels to later Chinese writing. While the very first genre of writing that we find in the record is economic receipts, counting sheep and whatnot, it seems that the next type of thing to be written down was the list. Now, there may have been lists assembled for a variety of purposes, but the most common appears to have been essentially dictionaries, written by people learning how to be scribes. After all, if you have a standard set of a few hundred characters, and you need them all to be somewhat standardized so that a scribe in one place can read the writing of a scribe in another place, then everyone has to be on the same page, or the same clay tablet, as it were. And thus, pretty much as soon as we see any quantity of real writing in the archaeological record, we see the emergence of lexical lists, and we see the Eduba educational institutions for teaching young men, and not infrequently young women, to copy and memorize those signs. Now, the Eduba, the scribal schools of the ancient world, will change in form over time. In the early Bronze Age, it seems to have been a separate educational institution, not terribly unlike a modern school, or more you could think a one-room schoolhouse, where young folks would go in for most of the day for a period of a few years. By the old Babylonian period, the separate institutions had often been replaced by elder scribes giving instruction out of their houses to much smaller class sizes, likely a reflection of the fact that the scribal perfection was much more of an inherited institution at that point. 
reading was by now quite concentrated in a series of distinct professions, priest or government person or general scribe, and you would often, though not always, be born into literacy, much as you were born into these particular professions. But what's most remarkable is that through these changes in institutional form, through the march of the centuries and changes in language, the actual curriculum, both what was taught and how it was taught, appears to have been astonishingly stable for over two or two and a half thousand years. And at the heart of things, intellectually, was the list. Now, we still use lists today, and internet spammers have learned that people will often read endless list articles rather than a single book. A list is a powerful tool for the human mind, and this power was not lost on the original Sumerians doing the first writings. When we see other genres being committed to writing for the first time, we see lists everywhere. The oldest written prayers often have an extremely weak sense of what we might now call narrative flow, because they're often nothing more than lists of titles or praises. Those of you who have listened through some of the episode where I read out praise hymns of the gods, you know what I'm talking about. What sounds to us like extreme repetition is often the ancient equivalent of bullet points. Here, for instance, I just went in, I picked a random hymn to Enlil, and I found this very sort of thing. It reads, You, Enlil, are Lord, God, King. You are a judge who makes decisions about heaven and earth. Your lofty word is as heavy as heaven, and there's no one who can lift it. The Anuna gods bow at your words. Your word is weighty in heaven, a foundation on the earth. In the heavens, it's a great word reaching up to the sky. On the earth, it's a foundation which can't be destroyed. When your word relates to the heavens, it will bring abundance, and abundance will pour forth from the heavens. When your word relates to the earth, it will bring prosperity, and the earth will produce prosperity. Your word means flax. Your word means grain. Your word means the early flooding, the life of the lands. It makes the living creatures, the animals which copulate and breathe joyfully in the greenery. You, Enlil, the good shepherd, know their ways and command the sprinkling stars. Now, there is composition involved here. The sentences are individually related to the ones around it, and this whole paragraph is about a particular topic, the word of Enlil. But you could also organize these in a bullet point list without really losing very much from the work as a whole. Similarly, the larger sections are often sort of lists of lists. This one was praising Enlil's word. The next is praising Ninlil, his concert, consort. The one prior to that is a list of praises for Enlil's ingenuity. And once lists get used for hymns, well, after that we start to see them in all sorts of other places. They make lists of wise sayings, some of which we've read on this show. They make lists of medicinal recipes, some of which we've read on this show. They make lists of historical kings, which we've used extensively on this show, though I don't think I've read any king's lists directly. They're not very interesting. And when the first libraries are established, here's the real kicker, they start making lists 
of all the different lists found in the library collection, an ancient card catalog of sorts. But of course, there's at least one major difference between ancient and modern card catalogs, aside, of course, from the weight of lugging around a bunch of clay reference tablets in your arms. We sort books nowadays in alphabetical order, but cuneiform has no such thing. Now, interestingly, Chinese has actually developed an order based on how the strokes and the character are ordered, but we know of no such thing for cuneiform. Instead, cuneiform lists are ordered based on categories, and when those categories were exhausted, they ex employed analogy and developed elaborate systems of analogy. And so here, finally, we see the intellectual roots of the earliest systematized science and philosophy, likely running back all the way to the Sumerians who started everything. Words and analogies. This is the heart of the Mesopotamian philosophical project, and it's the core of Esagil Ken Apley's contribution to Mesopotamian scholarship. Now, did this actually start at the start of Sumerian wisdom? We can't know for sure. We see it pretty well developed at this point around 1000 BCE, but we can only guess at what point it develops. Now, I figure it started pretty early. Some think it arose pretty late, and most scholars are wise enough to say that it's just tough to tell, given the paucity of real scholarly texts which survive from the Bronze Age. Whatever the case, it starts with words. The idea that words have power comes down into the modern age, but the Mesopotamians were much more serious about it than we were. Words themselves appear to have lent existence to their reference. For example, when we nowadays want to discuss everything, we say things like everything under the sun or everything you know, on God's green earth, or we, we might say everything in the universe. But the equivalent phrase in Akkadian was everything that has a name. Oftentimes, the gods' acts of creation or of steering the universe were depicted as giving names to things or writing them down in the Tablet of Destinies. Marduk's great moment of triumph in the Enuma Elish is accompanied by him given 50 really impressive, powerful names, being here both a list and a demonstration of power through powerful names. Of course, the most well-known Mesopotamian-influenced story, the Garden of Eden story in the Bible, has God creating the world through speech acts, and then has the first man, Adam, who partakes in the image of God, participating in the creation by giving names to all the animals, and thus helping to create them. The idea that a thing needs a name to exist, it goes deep. And we still have part of this mindset today. We see it most powerfully in medicine, both ancient and modern, as the first step in any disease treatment plan is naming the disease. Whether you or an ancient Sumerian first experiences disease symptoms, now you're obviously a bit unhappy about being sick, depending on the severity, you're more or less unhappy about it. You go to the doctor, though, and the first thing you expect is for the doctor to tell you what disease you have, to name it. 
And this naming, pretty much universally, no matter how bad the named disease is, brings you a level of relief. Just compare even the most grim prognosis pronouncement to instead your doctor looking at you and then shrugging his shoulders and saying he has no idea what's wrong with you. To have an unnameable disease is far more worrisome than having a named but even a very grim disease. And just having that name assists in recovery by putting your mind at ease. Just naming the disease was a massive function of Mesopotamian medicine, which gets us to the first and most well-known of Esagil Kin Apley's scientific contributions, the Sakeku. Now, honestly, the Sakeku is kind of amazing. It's an exhaustive list of medical diagnoses, and when I say exhaustive, I mean it would probably exhaust anyone who had to carry around all those clay tablets any distance. Even if most of us have never read any actual medical textbooks, we know how textbooks in general are organized nowadays. There's a lot of words. But in the eyes of someone like Esagilkin Apley, or indeed most Mesopotamian scholars, 99% of a modern textbook is just filler. No, instead, there's nothing but a list of indicators, and each indicator followed by what it indicates. I'm uh, having a little trouble getting my hands on anything from the actual classical Sakeku, which is quite frustrating given that I'm doing a whole episode on it. I can find a lot of papers about it, and I can find some similar text lists, but just the Sakeku is apparently, I don't know, real hard to get your hands on. Anyway, looking at a similar document... Uh, that lists things a medical practitioner may do when approaching a patient for the first time. And it reads this. It says, When you approach the patient, do not approach the patient until you have cast a spell over yourself. If you pour water on the patient's face and he does not shudder and does not recognize someone that's known to him, a god has decreed he will not get well. If you pour water over him, and his chest and his epigastrium become soft, then he will get well. If you pour water into his mouth, and he can hold the water in his mouth, he will get well. In each of these, we begin with a sort of condition, almost always an observation of the patient's state in some way, followed by some sort of evaluation of the meaning of that condition. In the classic Mesopotamian diagnostic structure, these take a three-part structure. First is the observation. Second, the particular god who is responsible or whose domain this kind of thing is, is identified. Third, there's a prognosis of some sort. The structure has a bit of flexibility to it. Like just above, we uh, skipped the mention of a god in some of those. Um, and in... Others uh, were just missing sections because the texts are damaged. Some tablets have the same general structure, but in a slightly different form or with the parts rearranged. But in general, these texts are a long list of, if you see this, it's the hand of this particular god, and the patient is going to have this outcome. Now, some of these diagnostic series can be pretty simple. For example... 
If his head stings him, his head seems to roar, his ears roar, and his fingers sting him, it's the affliction of a ghost. If from his head on to the rest of him shows the presence of blood vessels, he will live. If from his head down to the rest of his body there are no visible blood vessels present, he will die. Now, some are complicated, and the exact meaning isn't always clear nowadays. Like, if his head continually afflicts him, and his neck continually hurts him intensely, and his breast continually hurts him, if he continually has a crushing sensation in his chest, he's continually and incessantly troubled, he eats and drinks but then doesn't eat and drink again, Ishtar continually pursues him because of a, a house of four entrances, or his house is at a crossroads. For a woman, it's because of well and cup. For the queen or for an adolescent girl, it is because of the place of mourning and tavern. What does that mean? I don't know. Nobody seems to know. Whatever. That's how it is. These medical texts of which the Sakaku is only one collection, can go on for many tablets, each one containing dozens of statements like this, hundreds sometimes of statements like this. These are lists, usually organized by major symptom or by body part, often going either head to toe or toe to head or left to right or back to front or so on. As I said, these sort of texts are found all the way back in the old Babylonian period, but Asagio Kenapli did three things that no other author had done before. The first was, he appears to have collected every medical text he had access to, and may have authored more to fill in gaps where his collection was incomplete. In total, he put together some 3,000 entries across 40 tablets to discuss just about every medically significant event imaginable, from pain in the eyes, to a red nose, to various kinds of fever, to seizures and collapses of all kinds, all the way to things we might not consider medical today. For example, there's a discussion about what it means if a patient requests various kinds of fruit, or if the lamp above his head flickers in certain kinds of ways. Now, just putting this all together was itself an accomplishment, but perhaps Esagil Ken Apley's most celebrated text from the medical collection is the very first one, in which the contents of all 40 tablets are listed in catalog, with the first item in each series listed as a sort of tablet name. So if you're looking for diagnoses related to discoloration of the face, you want tablet 9, which you'll recognize because in the catalog, it, the top line begins with, if the patient's nose is red. And since you're familiar with the system of organizing these lists because you're a trained Mesopotamian scholar, you'll likely even have an idea if you need to look at the top, middle, or bottom of the tablet first to find your particular symptom. But not only did he collect and edit all of these diagnoses, he also put his name on them to give a sort of seal of authority that Esagil Kin Apli, the chief scholar of King Adad, Apla Idna had verified the truth of what was contained in this collection. 
Scholars up until this point were, with very few exceptions, not authors. That doesn't mean no one wrote anything novel or interesting, but that they were largely uninterested in taking credit for their writings before now, letting the text itself stand as the authority and the writer stood as a mere copyist. We saw in Hedwana, the daughter of Sargon of Akkad, authoring hymns back over a thousand years ago, and in this particular era we saw the author of the Babylonian Theodicy embed his own name as a prayer into the text, though, like I said back in the Babylonian Theodicy episode, we're not 100% sure if that was actually Esagil Ken Apley under a slightly different name, or if that was a completely different person. Uh... That's beside the point. Uh, and w whether he, whether the Babylonian Theodicy author w put his name in there because he wanted to be remembered as an author specifically, or if he just wanted his name in there because it was a poem of praise to a god and to the king, that's unclear. But this is perhaps the first time, and certainly the most significant time, that a man writes a text and puts it in writing that the text is valid at least in part because he was the one who wrote it. Now, this would not be a trend which would catch on in a big way in Mesopotamian culture, where most written works would continue to be either anonymous or, ironically, attributed falsely to Esagil Ken Ampli in hopes of trading off his authority. But it's still significant in the history of ideas, and no doubt contributed to his fame, as nearly every advanced scribal practitioner for the next few hundred years would end up working off at least one of his many medical and divinatory collections. And that's actually... A, that's actually even more significant than you can imagine, because in the minds of most scholars, the knowledge that is coming to them, at least the foundations of this knowledge, had all come from the pre-flood kings. Uh, the gods at the creation of the earth had given certain secret knowledge to certain wise men in the very early days of antediluvian history. And so, every in their in their idea in their mind, everything they were doing was just building on the principles that had already been passed down from the gods since time immemorial. And of course, Esagil Ken Apley was quite explicitly building off that exact same framework. But the fact that here was a man in you could call it recorded history, doing the sort of things that great sages had been doing way back before the Great Flood, that's really impressive. That makes him a scientific rock star, which is why I compare him to someone like Einstein. Most people you meet on the street, they don't know necessarily what Einstein actually did. They couldn't explain the tensor mathematics behind general relativity, but they know he was a smart guy that did some real good science. Esagilkin Apley, similarly, was a well-known name, even among, possibly even among people who may not have really comprehended what he did. Anyway, alongside collecting and ordering and authoring the Sakeku, 
And, of course, he wrote a bunch of other interesting texts that we might not have time to get to today. He did something that had never been done before in a scholarly text. He explained, in writing, why he was writing it, and what the text should be used for. He added it at the end of the Sakiku catalog, between that and the next, and the catalog for the next work, and the passage is famous among Mesopotamian scholars. It reads, Total of 40 tablets and over 3,000 entries of Sakiku complete. That which since old times had never received an addition, and which has been like twisted threads, for which there was no copy, during the reign of Adad ad Apla king of Babylon, to work it anew comes Esagil kin Apli, son of Asaluhi Mansum, the Apgalu sage of Hammurabi the king, the descendant of the gods Sin, Lisi, and Nanaya, the prominent citizen of the city of Borsippa, chamberlain of the Ezida, anointed one of the god Nabu, who holds the tablet of the god's destinies, who checks the conflicting versions, the purification and ablution priest of Ninilzil, the lady of careful preparation, close sister of his loved one, scholar of the land of Sumer and Akkad, with the skillful wisdom with which Ea, Marduk, and Gula gifted him. In a methodical manner, he undertook an edition of Sakiku from the top of the head to the feet, and established it for instruction. Pay attention, take care, do not neglect your knowledge. The one who has not obtained knowledge shall not speak about Sakiku, and tell about the other text, Alamdimu. Sakiku is the compilation concerning disease, depression, and distress. Alamdimu is about the features and the human shape, the fate of mankind, which Ea, Marduk, and Gula established. Regarding both series, their arrangement is as one. The professional who makes the decision, who watches over people's lives, who knows Sakiku and Alamdimu in its entirety, shall inspect, check, consider, and then give an interpretation to the king. Now, whole papers can be written just about those two paragraphs of text, and it's really hard to understate their importance, both in the history of ideas and in the history of Mesopotamian scholarship. But the short version is that first, Esagil Ken Apley points out that the collections of diagnostic omens in his time were like a bunch of twisted threads without clear versions for many texts. We certainly don't have libraries as complete as they would have been in his time, but from what we can tell of the Bronze Age texts, they definitely appear to have been fairly ad hoc, varied from place to place, both in organization and content. Then he describes his qualifications, from his notional descent from a great scribe in Hammurabi's time, which may or may not have been intended as literal, to his divine assistance in various matters. But then that next bit, characterizing his work as methodical and complete, from head to toe. Now, as he may be casting himself in a good light, of course he is, but that doesn't mean it's false, and from the sections which do survive, his claim to completeness is pretty solid. 
And that other work he mentions, the Alamdimu, serves as a sort of book two for the Sakaku. Whereas the first collection serves to tell about various illnesses, the Alamdimu discusses the implications of the human body's shape. Both a range of normal shapes and what they suggest for various aspects of health, as well as assorted disordered body shapes. It deals with issues related to pregnancy and to what the child looks like when he's first born, to various physical deformities, but also just to regular healthy humans, since it was apparently considered important to catalog all of human experience, not just the abnormal parts. That drive for completeness, though, is part and parcel of what we would now call something like the professional attitude. Things that came in lists were the specialty of scribes, the intellectual class writ large. Songs, poems, common sayings, practical skills, these were all the trade of the ordinary man. Things that the human mind can memorize without specialized training. But long, extensive lists like the sort that the scribes wrote down, everything from word lists hundreds of items long to medical texts featuring over 3,000 individual entries, these are beyond the capacity for human memory. Just as students in school nowadays are taught to de-emphasize memorization in favor of search skills, just as modern programmers take more pride in knowing multiple computer language than in knowing any non-English foreign languages, cuneiform was the prestige technology of the day for many hundreds of years, and the scribes themselves were quite aware of the fact that the writing system was basically designed to write lists of things. And they made lists of absolutely everything. I can't emphasize that enough. I've been focused on the Sakiku medical text because it's impressive in ways that are relatable for a modern listener. But those same list formula are employed just as extensively in legal texts. For those who still remember, back in episode 50, I did a full reading of the entirety of Hammurabi's famous law code, which was nothing but a massive list of laws in the format of, if a person does this thing, the penalty will be this. Book ended by listings of gods who supported the king and lists of the king's own honors. And they made lists of omens. The medical texts get separated out from the omen texts in many modern treatments of them, because, of course, nowadays we recognize medicine as a legitimate discipline and divination as a sham. But in ancient Babylon, and for Esagilkin Apley himself, medicine was nothing but one subset of the wider science of divination. If the birds fly north, it pretends this or that. If the sheep's liver is deformed, it has some other meaning. If you have a mole on your left cheek, it'll bring about this fortune. If your fever is accompanied by a headache, it indicates some other outcome. If the clouds take this shape, it may rain soon. If the moon is in the seventh house and Jupiter aligns with Mars, then peace will guide the planets and love will steer the stars. If I drop a heavy object from a tall tower, it'll fall at a given rate. Now, some of these things we accept as valid and some we don't. 
but the general principle of taking observations and predicting outcomes for them is the same thing we do now. We just acknowledge different rules of causation than Esagil Ken Apley would have. And I did get a bit distracted somewhere, I should make clear that Esagil Ken Apley is not only famous because he wrote an important medical text. He's famous because he wrote a ton of what we get called omen texts as well, predicting health from various symptoms, predicting a nation's health from signs in the weather, predicting a king's life from signs in the stars. These things are all of a type for him. He wrote a pair of exorcism manuals which often dramatically straddle the line between magic and medicine, a line which he was wholly unaware of. But more important at this point than who was doing the writing is getting at the most interesting question of Babylonian academics. How does one decide that a certain result follows from a particular observation? And before we get into it too deeply, let me read you just a bunch of omens from various different works and think about how they're getting the connection between cause and effect. If a house's doorways open towards the south, the inhabitant of that house will be happy. If the doorway opens to the north, the inhabitant will not be happy. If it opens to the east, losses will be in store for that house. And if it opens to the west, it will be an unhappy house and will bring death to the homeowner. If a man's temples, like the temples on his forehead, not the worshipping kind, if a man's temples feel pressure and his ears cannot hear anything, it's the hand of his personal God being laid on him, and he will die. If a man's face is deformed and his tongue is yellow and his whole body is yellow, then he's ill in the stomach and will die in at most three days. If the patient has a diseased anus, grind up five silla of flaxseed, run it through a sieve for purity, then steep the seed in milk. Attach the medicine to a cloth wrapping and bind the wrap around the patient's chest for 14 days, and he will improve. If fluid flows from his nose and the bulb of his nose is puffed up, he will die. If the bulb of his nose is cold mixed with warm, on the same day after treatment he may get worse, but he will get well in the end. If a certain type of red lesion appears on the bulb of the nose, it's of no consequence. If a certain type of white lesion appears on the bulb of his nose, he will get well. If a certain type of black lesion has appeared on the bulb of his nose for three days, he will die. If, in the grove inside a city, a date palm falls down, the mood of the land will change, the spirit of the land will be dispersed. If a turnip, or something in a canal, bears seed out of season, the furrow will decrease its yield. If vegetables are plentiful in a year, the sesame will also do well that year. If the river is huge, but its water cannot enter the irrigation canals, there will be a flood in the land that cannot be blocked. If a turtle gives birth in a man's house, that house will be dispersed. If a turtle gives birth in a marsh, that marsh will diminish. If a turtle is seen in a temple, that temple will be abandoned. 
If a turtle is seen in the city square, the mayor of that city will die and his goods will be plundered. If a white fungus appears on the right side of a man's bedroom, the house will be dispersed. If a white fungus appears on the left side of a man's bedroom, the house will be normal. Honestly, I could probably read these for days. I think these omen texts are fascinating in their variety, their completeness, and sometimes arbitrariness. But that's the real secret of these texts, that no matter how they may look to us today, not a single entry in these collectively tens of thousands of known omen texts is arbitrary. Which, of course, leads us back into that single biggest question of the study of Babylonian wisdom, how did ancient people think? The answer, of course, is ultimately unknowable. And to be honest, I'm not sure I could explicate how exactly I think, certainly not in a just a podcast, but people who have studied these texts far more than I have begun to piece together a few of the tools that Esagil Ken Apley and his fellow scholars were employing when assembling these various medical and omen texts. First, and perhaps the most obvious tool, is empirical observation. Not necessarily careful and consistent observation, but honestly realizing that you need to look out for things like confirmation bias and hidden variables in a consistent fashion, that's a relatively recent trend. But observation is not new to the Mesopotamians. Human cultures around the world have noticed that if you plant a seed, it turns into a plant. Or if you get a wound on one part of your body, you're likely to heal fine, but a wound on another part of the body can be more serious. Or maybe they notice things like the flourishing of a certain mold or fungus correlates with a better or worse harvest this year. Or certain patterns in the stars are often accompanied by various weather events. Or that during a full moon there are more attacks from ghosts. This is how all human knowledge developed at the dawn of humanity, before more complicated modes of thinking were developed and systematized. And indeed, the mere listing of these observed phenomena was a big step forward in scientific thinking. For the first time, observations could be recorded and then compared to what happened in the future. And sure enough, there was a tendency to observe more ghost activity during full moons, so that item could stay on the list. But after a bit more observation, it seems that, that that mold observation may have been a bit more mistaken, so it can be pulled off the list. They're not doing controlled trials. They're not looking out for confirmation bias, and they aren't carefully recording the successes and failures. Nowadays, we make a sharp distinction between superstition and real causality, but for a pure empiricist like the earliest humans, there's no way to distinguish those two categories. You need a theoretical framework on top of that empiricism to distinguish between superstition and real causality, absent a whole bunch of really well-run controlled trials. You may see that wearing some gloves protects my hands from getting scratched up, and you may also see that wearing this lucky amulet protects my soul from being attacked by witches. Both of these were believed to be observed, and so both were stored in the sum total of human knowledge in the ancient world. Now some wonder, 
how dumb ancient people could be when they missed the fact that many of these causes would come and go without the reported effects. Sometimes a turtle might give birth in a man's house without any negative consequences. But ancient people weren't stupid. They realized that life was complicated. In fact, they accepted far more than we often do that some total of life is so complicated that it's probably impossible for any one person to fully grasp everything that's going on. We still implicitly believe this, by the way, which is why real science is all about getting controlled trials and situations as far away from the real world as possible to avoid all the confounding variables. Nowadays, we're so certain that we understand everything that we're surprised when a medicine fails to cure, or when a preferred government policy goes sideways, or when a million other things happen, because there's always more factors than we're taking into account with our limited human minds. And of course, the ancient Mesopotamians had a worldview centered on the gods. Not because they were ignorant, but because they genuinely believed that the gods were real active forces in their lives. And of course, the gods are fundamentally unknowable. Something might work one day and fail the next because of the unknowable whims of some god or another. To a certain modern mindset, this sounds like a mere excuse, but it was a real factor in their thinking. To take a modern example, just yesterday, I was at work playing around in a database. Now, I feel like I generally understand this database, or I wouldn't be working with it for money, but yesterday, I touched a fairly old sector of the database and caused a massive cascading failure that led to a three-hour work stoppage. Not a good day. Now, in the end, we got it fixed, but we never did figure out what the root cause was, and we simply resolved to never touch those sectors ever again. In the future, when we hire some new guy to help with this database, I'm going to need to tell him to never touch that part of the database. He's going to ask why, and I won't have a good answer for him. I'll just say it breaks. I might as well say that it's cursed, or it's the will of the machine spirits, or that the secrets of this part of the database are lost to time and unknowable. Which is true, because the person that set that database up is gone. I don't know, I don't know where they're working now. For all that I'm focusing on how natural it is for humans to employ a certain type of empiricism, our brains also crave that understanding of cause and effect. And when nothing else is possible, ascribing cause to the unknowable will of the gods is always an option. But that gets us to the next tool in our ancient intellectual toolkit. How much of these omen texts are purely observational? The answer is impossible to even guess at. And scholars honestly can't tell you if the majority are things that were once observed or only a minority of them were ever actually like, oh, I saw that, this was the result, that's going on the list. We have no idea how many of them were observational, how many were derived first from theories. At least some of the things that are on these lists are impossible for anyone to actually observe. They're included in texts as markers of completeness and also sort of as esoteric knowledge to mark the trained scholar off from a mere community healer. 
In these cases, the cause and effect is driven by theory, a deductive rather than inductive approach, which makes these texts invaluable in the history of ideas. Now, the texts themselves almost never justify themselves, but remarkably, in the period following Esagio Ken Apley's generation, we start to see the rise of commentary texts. Now, so far, archaeologists have collected and identified almost 900 of these, many of which literally feature someone writing notes in the margin of another tablet, explaining what's being said in various ancient tablets. In practice, it's almost the same as the philosophical traditions of commentary that developed in antiquity in the, and in the Middle Ages, which should be familiar to anyone who listens to Peter Adamson's podcast, The History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps, a show I can't recommend enough. It's one of my personal favorites. That's Peter Adamson, History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. It's fantastic. But anyway... He doesn't cover ancient Mesopotamia, which made me very sad, but I kind of understand. Anyway, these commentaries are invaluable for peeling back the layers a bit and showing how Babylonian scholars thought about Babylonian scholarship, explaining unclear passages and explicating the connections between things which an ancient student might be unclear about. Of course, as helpful as these are, even 900 examples really isn't that much, especially once you weed out the commentaries that are badly damaged or not really relevant to anything we care about nowadays. But there is one other source that shows how the ancients were thinking in systematic fashion. These are the famous debate poems, which we actually featured in a much earlier episode of the show, way back in episode 26. Now, it's debated how seriously we're supposed to take these debates, which feature two inanimate objects arguing over their respective merits, usually before a panel of divine judges. So, for instance, in one, the date palm tree is arguing with the tamarisk tree as to which is the better tree. And, of course, fun fact, palm trees aren't actually trees, they're a type of grass but the Mesopotamians classed them with trees because they look like trees. Anyway, another has a sheep arguing against grain over whether sheep or grain is better. Another sees summer and winter debating. Birds argue with fish. Silver argues with copper, and so on. These may have been intended very seriously, or it could have been the equivalent of drunken college students arguing whether studying humanities is better than studying engineering, or even two kids in the schoolyard debating whether Superman would win in a fight against Goku. Serious or not, these hone the skills of the debater, and more importantly, they reveal what methods of reasoning were considered valid in that culture since when bringing your best arguments, you don't put forward ideas that you yourself don't consider to be rational or valid. Now, in all of these, we see at the heart of the Mesopotamian mindset is a deep-set pragmatism, strongly related to the empirical observation that I noted earlier. They plant crops in the fall because they've observed them to grow best when planted in that season. They perform exorcisms in a certain way for those showing certain symptoms because 
they've observed people getting better after attempting these kind of exorcisms in this kind of case. They worship the gods regularly because they generally observe the pious receiving rewards and the impious receiving punishments. Babylonian theodicy tells us that they also observed the opposite, but more often than not, they saw the gods affecting the world in a predictable fashion. None of these are abstract ideas for the Babylonians, not for the laymen and not for the scribes and priests. But that's not to say that there are not any abstract theories being put forward at this time. One of perhaps the earliest and most poorly understood intellectual tool is that of analogy. For example, we find that the ancient treatment for diarrhea and for a runny nose involved a lot of similar herbs. We aren't explicitly told why, but they may have been analogizing the treatment for one runny discharge might be effective on another runny discharge. Analogy, though, is hard to detect explicitly when it isn't made clear, which is most of the time. And so, while we can see that they're using analogy frequently to connect one idea to another, it's hard to say in any one case whether they're analogizing or using some other, in other intellectual tool or if they're just observing things. Often, the analogy is in service to some other theoretical principle which they now appear to have had to some extent. We can identify a few of these theoretical principles for sure, one of which is ex explicated quite nicely in a diviner's manual from the late Babylonian period, where the author writes, The signs on earth, just as those in the sky, give us signals. Sky and earth both produce portents through appearing separately. They are not separate because sky and earth are related. A sign that pretends evil in the sky is also evil in the earth, and one that portends evil on earth is evil in the sky. Now, the Greeks usually get credit for what's being expressed here, the fundamental unity of the heavens and the earth, though here it's meant in a somewhat different way from our modern scientific understanding. You see, rather than saying that the same natural processes underlie all reality, they're saying that the decrees of the gods govern both sky and earth equally, and that the decrees of one realm can be seen with some force in the other realm. In a way, analogy could be called up as a method for bridging that gap, but in a way, the idea that there is no gap here at all is kind of important. Another theoretical principle is the power of words. Modern idea of languages as something that evolve and grow was utterly unknown in ancient times. Rather, it was the belief of the Mesopotamians that language, and more importantly the names of objects, the set of nouns, had been decreed by the gods as part of the world's creation. These names often had power in a mystical sense, both in the spoken and written word, which were believed to express that power in many ritual contexts. Take a look at the logo of this podcast. That guy, that smiling, praying guy, his name was Ebi Il, or, I mean, that's a statue. The guy who commissioned it was named Ebi Il, and 
I, this is the statue that I use as the logo on his show. He made an image of himself praying, and he carved on that statue. You can't see it in the logo. It's much further down on the back. He carved in that statue a prayer of praise to a god. And then that prayer and statue was inserted into the temple of that god. In this manner, it was believed that he really would get credit for essentially praying continually for all eternity as long as the statue remained in the temple because the written word has power in itself and the image as an analogy of Ebe'il was essentially representative of him. You can do a lot with just the power of words and the power of analogy. A lot of modern people who believe in active magical practice have these two as their fundamental rules even today. But names in ancient Mesopotamia were far more complicated than they are today. You see, everyone who could write in cuneiform had been trained in two languages, Sumerian, the classical language of scholarship at this point, and Akkadian, which was also a pretty formalized, standardized language, which had likely been held rigid while the spoken language had drifted over the centuries. These are two separate languages, both using the same general set of cuneiform characters, so each character has at least two meanings. Except it's more than that, because most characters have both an ideographic meaning, that is to say, one character stood for one concept, like a character for dog, or a character for man, or a character for walking, and each character also carried with it a sound. Some words are written as combinations of ideograms. For instance, the word for king, Lugal, was a combination of the character meaning man, followed by the character meaning big. The big man is the king. Makes sense. Other words, however, were written as a combination of syllables. Many characters carry multiple meanings. Many characters carry multiple sounds. Many sounds can be written by multiple sets of characters. Then you multiply all that by the fact that you as a scribe are fluent in two languages with both, which both share the same character set. While the etymology of the word Lugal, meaning king from big man, is readily apparent, we know from commentaries that a skilled scribe could twist and wiggle the words in his care ferociously. To give you one example of how this could get horribly complex, we have one later commentary claiming to offer us an etymology of the name of Marduk's main temple in Babylon, the Esagil, which is the same temple which features in Esagil Kinapli's name. The anonymous commentator explains... The Esagil, which, as its name indicates, means, in its midst, settled a shrine, the Prince Marduk. Since Si means to settle, Sha means midst, An means its, Sag means shrine, Gil means to settle, Si means prince, and notice that Si just meant to settle, and also se means prince, and gil means Marduk. Didn't it just mean to settle? How does gil mean to settle, and how does gil mean Marduk? Where did they get one, two, three, four, five, six, seven syllables out of the word esagil? 
which sounds like it's three syllables. I have no idea. I don't know what all this means, uh, but he's pulling apart the constituent cuneiform characters in the word to invent an etymology. A modern etymologist would be driven insane looking at some of these invented etymologies, but that's beside the point. The point is, they believed that by discovering the meaning in the name, they were unlocking the power of the name for use in rituals of all sorts, both those that we would classify as religious or magical and those we would classify as medicinal. These hodgepodge of names and analogies seems to have complemented empirical observation and acted as the theoretical filter through which observations were sifted and organized into a fairly complete and comprehensive view of the world. And it sounds like madness to us today, but here's the thing. Neighboring countries largely lacked this sort of academic theorizing framework. Everyone had folk medicine, traditions built from generations of people sticking random plants on each other and seeing what cures what illness, and this is not completely ineffective. But when those basic level observations are supercharged with Babylonian theories of how the world works, it made for a more effective and practically useful science. Babylonian scholars were, from the late Bronze Age onward, in high demand from other Near Eastern nations. For a petty king in the Levant or Anatolia to have a Babylonian doctor, or a Babylonian exorcist, or a Babylonian mathematician, well, that was something prestigious, because these doctors were using these sometimes strange techniques, and they were more effective than whatever you had at home. And that's really the bottom line here. Babylonian modes of thought were in development for some 1,500 years, but they were never really overthrown. They were never really defeated, or um, they never really had the chance to evolve. They were replaced by the political circumstances of the Greeks coming to dominate the region, and then the cuneiform languages as a whole were rendered obsolete. What would intellectual history have looked like if there had been a continuous tradition out of Mesopotamia? Certainly quite different and probably far richer. We could point to ways that the Greeks were influenced and owe a great deal to Babylonian scholarship, but in the end, our Western traditions are discontinuous with the Babylonian ones. And this episode has won run really long, and my throat hurts, and I feel like I've sort of lost the plot at some point. Uh, I was going to touch on some other stuff, but we're at an hour. That's enough. <laughs> we'll get to other stuff in the future. I'm going to post a bunch of the things that I was reading for this episode into the show notes over on oldeststories.com. Uh, oldeststories.net. Sorry, don't put in oldeststories.com. I don't know where, the, where that's going to take you. The point is, Esagil Ken Apley was something of a standard bearer for all that I've been discussing today. His name was recognized on through to the end of the Babylonian scientific tradition, and it's a bit of a shame that he isn't remembered alongside other ancient naturalists like Aristotle and Pliny. Maybe this show can keep his name alive, and maybe not. Whatever the case, 
there will be far more to say about specific sciences in Babylon as this show continues. Certainly, I've got a ton of stuff that I was reading just, just to get this show put together, and it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. Maybe I really will sit down and read a whole bunch of Omen texts, and maybe all of you listeners would get sick of that really fast. I don't know. Uh, send me a note. You want to hear a whole bunch of Omen texts? If people request it, I'll do it. Uh, but for now, we're going to head back to political history. We are in for a depressing century or so, unless you really like Arameans, in which case it'll be depressing but with Arameans. So join us next time for Bronze Age Collapse 2, where things collapse yet again, and we won't even know who is king in Babylon for a century or so. Thank you for listening. <laughs>